The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Jesus, you are the good shepherd, and we are your sheep. Feed us today, Lord, with your word, through your spirit. Encourage us with your love. Challenge us with your truth. And send us with your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About a decade ago, my wife and I moved from Bloomer, Wisconsin, which is the rope-jumping capital of the world, to St. Louis, Missouri. And we moved to St. Louis to attend seminary. And so as we started to put down roots, we were visiting different churches, trying to figure out where we would want to call home. And we visited one church called New City Fellowship, And uh, they have this fellowship break, kind of like we do. We actually adopted it from them, except their fellowship break is 15 minutes long. And um, anyways, during that fellowship time, I ran into a girl that I knew in high school, a friend. And uh, she was asking me questions like, hey, what are you doing here and stuff? I said, we just moved to St. Louis. And she's like, great. Like, why did you move to St. Louis? And I said, well, we moved to St. Louis so that I could attend seminary. And her response was priceless. She said, you? Seminary? Are you serious? Are you joking? Or are you serious? I'm, no, I'm, I'm serious. I, she, but in high school, you were just so arrogant and you were like so proud and self-asserting football player guy. And, and now you're in seminary? Like, yeah. She's like, man, I just, I can't believe it. I'm like, well, God does great things, right? So, and um, anyways, so, so years go by and, you know, we plant Jacobswell Church and now like on Facebook, when we had our first service, we'll say, hey, here's our first service, celebrate, things like that. And, and this friend, Kara, will still post things like, I just can't believe he's a pastor. Like, how did that happen, right? You see, what Kara is so helpful in reminding me of is that, I have a pretty spectacular salvation story, Um, and I was a pretty spectacular sinner, and and I so quickly forget that because I was a religious kid. I was kind of a good kid. I would go to church on Sundays, but I really hated it. You know, I didn't like it at all, and evidently, I was much more of a spectacular sinner than I thought I was. Today, we are going to be reminded of what a spectacular salvation we have in Christ. And we are so prone to forget this. Even King David prayed to the Lord, Lord, renew to me today the joy of your salvation. Maybe that has been your prayer this week or this day or this month or this year. And so my hope today is to look at the spectacular salvation of another spectacular sinner so that you and I might cherish the spectacular salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And so if you would please open up to Acts chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 31 today. We'll be working through it in parts. Uh, It's page 917 in the Red Bible and page 1189 in the Children's Bible. 
Just to catch you up to speed, last week we studied Acts chapter 8, and in Acts chapter 8 we see that there is a great persecution that breaks out against the church in Jerusalem, and because of that persecution in Jerusalem, the church scatters, we call it diaspora, it scatters throughout Judea and Samaria, and as it scatters, the gospel scatters with it, because they are so overwhelmed by the greatness of the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ. And so they go out and they start telling everybody about Jesus throughout Judea and Samaria. And so we get to today's passage. And as we look at today's passage, and as we look at the conversion of this guy named Saul, who will also later be called Paul, so I might confuse it. Please forgive me. If I say Saul or Paul, I'm talking about the same guy. I mix it up all the time. But we're going to see the conversion of this guy named Saul. And we're going to see what a spectacular salvation story he has. And as we look at it, and as we read it, and as we digest it, really my goal for us today is this. If you're here today, and you are a Christian, my hope is to remind your heart and mind what a great salvation we have in Jesus Christ, so that the joy of God's salvation may beat strong in our heart. But if you're here today, and you're not a Christian— My hope is to show you what a superior salvation is offered in Jesus Christ, that you might know him, love him, and enjoy him. And so my hope is to convince us that we have such a spectacular salvation. And my hope is to grasp that from Acts chapter 9 as we look at three spectacular aspects of our salvation. The seeker of our salvation, the union of our salvation, and the news of our salvation. So let's start by looking at the spectacular seeker of our salvation. 9, 1, Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on the way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. You know, as we look at this passage and as we consider the story of Saul, what is it that Saul was seeking? Well, we look back in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, just a chapter ago, and we see that he is approving of the stoning of Stephen, of killing a man for talking about Jesus. We go forward to Acts 8.3 and we see that he is ravaging the church, that he's taking both men and women out of their houses, out of their livelihood, and throwing them into prison because they are followers of the way. That's what the early Christians were called, the way, because Jesus claimed to be the way to heaven. Then we fast forward here to Acts chapter 9, and in verse 1 we see that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he goes to the high priest and he gets permission from them. He gets letters for them to go to Damascus and to go up there and to persecute the Christians up there, to arrest them and to bring them bound back from Damascus to Jerusalem. Now, as you look at a map of Jerusalem and Damascus, 
You'll see, this is what surprised me. Maybe you knew this, but Jerusalem's down here. Damascus is all the way up here. It's 135 miles about, all the way from Jerusalem to Damascus. And what occurred to me, I mean, the question I had is, why did Saul go that far? Like, why didn't he just go to Joppa or to Caesarea? Why did he go all the way up to Damascus? And one of the interesting things about Damascus is Damascus is actually a very strategic city. It's a gateway over to Arabia, but also a gateway up to the north. And so in many ways, and if you know the calling of Saul, this is very ironic, but Saul was trying to prevent the spread of the gospel to Gentiles, right? He's trying to prevent the gospel from going out to the uttermost ends of the earth. And so he went to Damascus, a very pivotal city, to try to squelch what is happening. Now, if we look at this, it's easy to see that what Saul is seeking is simply to end the spread of the way, to spread, set, stop the end of Christianity. Now, what might be as big of a question of what Saul's seeking, maybe what is important of a question is to ask, what is Saul not seeking? I think it's very easy and very clear to see that Saul is not seeking to become a follower of the way. He's not seeking to become a follower of Jesus. And he certainly is not seeking salvation in Jesus. You see, Saul was not seeking Jesus for salvation. But what this story tells us is that Jesus is seeking Saul for his salvation. And his seeking of Saul does not start here. You see, Saul's conversion story actually appears three times in the book of Acts. Right here, it's recorded for us, kind of as a historical what happened. But later, Saul tells the testimony of how he was saved on two different occasions. And one occasion is in Acts chapter 26. Verse 13, Paul is speaking and he says this, sharing his testimony. He says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had, when, when, excuse me, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, and then see if you can notice the difference from Acts chapter 9. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Did you notice the added detail there? There's something we hear in this passage that we didn't hear in the first passage. And that when Jesus came to Saul and spoke to Saul, one of the things he asked Saul was, why are you, excuse me, not said, asked, but said, he said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what does that mean, to kick against the goads? Well, a goad was an iron instrument used for urging animals, right? For directing oxen and horses and other animals of that sort. And so if an animal was headed towards a cliff, they would use the goad to prick the animal, to move them, to send them in a way of safety. Or if they were thirsty, they would, they would goad the animal. They would prick them to direct them towards water so they could drink and be satisfied. And so Jesus comes to Saul and he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And what Jesus is saying to Saul is that I have been goading you. I have been goading you. Now, when we use that term, it usually has somewhat of a fight connotation or aggravation, right? Like you goaded someone into a fight. Maybe you've heard that before. But here it's a positive connotation of goading. And what what, God, what Jesus is saying to Saul is he's saying, I have been goading you to myself. I've been pricking you to myself. 
You remember Stephen and that speech that you heard? That was me goading you. You remember how you saw Stephen die with, with the face of an angel? That was me goading you to myself. You know how you persecuted Christians and you see their joy and you hear the testimonies about Jesus? That was me goading you to myself. And we see Jesus goading doesn't stop. He continues to goad him as he sends him to a house in Damascus where he might be healed. You know, as I look back at my high school days, um, I did not see this at the time, but hindsight is 2020. Uh, there is no doubt that God was goading me to himself. You see, there happened to be a Saturday where I had nothing to do, which was very, very rare. I always had something to do. I'm the youngest of five kids. I played four sports. They played four sports. We always had a place to go. But this particular Saturday had nothing to do. All my friends were gone. Very, very rare. That same Saturday, there was a pickup pick up football game at the end of my street. Now, God knows that my love language is football. So he put a football game at the end of the street. And like a moth to a flame, I'm like, all right, there I'm going. So I walk down there, and the, there are these guys, and I say, hey, can I play football with you all? And they say, sure. And they bring me in, and we're playing, and it's fun. It's a great group of guys. And so at the end, I'm like, hey, like, how do you guys all know each other? And they said, well, we're in this thing called Young Life. It's a ministry, and, you know, we get together and talk about Jesus and stuff like that. Would you, like, come sometime? I'm like, no way. Like, I, I do my religion Saturday, Sunday. I really don't like it, and I check the box, and I'm done with it. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, then a cute girl asked me to go to Young Life. And, um, you know, God goads with cute girls. He does that all the time. I mean, and so, so this cute girl asked me to go to Young Life, so I went, and I hear about Jesus, and Sounds good and okay, this is fine, but I don't know why all these people are so excited about this, right? And then God goaded me to go to this winter ski camp, and I went there, and I heard the good news of Jesus, but I didn't want it because I already had religion. I was doing it, and it was boring, and I hated it anyway, so why would I want more of it? And then I came back, and I went to another camp, and I heard the good news of Jesus again. Again, I didn't want anything to do with it, but all of these are ways that God was goading me to himself. And then on the bus ride home, the, dark, the bus was completely dark. All right? And I just had one light on, and God goaded me to ask my young life leader for a Bible. So I asked him for a Bible, and he gave me one, and he went back to his seat, went back to sleep. Everybody on the bus is asleep except for me, and this one light is on, and I'm reading God's word, and he goads me to himself, and he saves me. You see, I get to hear many people's testimonies, and there is this common factor in all of the testimonies. They can account to you how God has goaded them to himself. How God had brought this person in their life or this circumstance in this life or even maybe this suffering in their life in order to God goad his people to himself. And so Jesus goads us by his love. He pricks us to bring us to himself that we might be saved. You see, Saul was not pursuing Jesus for salvation, but Jesus was pursuing Saul for salvation. Saul was running from Jesus, but Jesus outran Saul, and he caught up to him, and he brought him to himself. You know, we are not so unlike Saul. You may stay here and say, well, you know, I don't go around killing Christians or killing anyone or persecuting anyone or throwing anyone in prison. But Romans 3.10 and 11 says it so clearly. It says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. And then it says this line, no one seeks for God. Friends, whether you consider yourself a Calvinist or an Arminian or you don't even know what that means, 
The good news of the gospel is not that you seek out a Savior, but that a Savior sought you out. That although he was in heaven, he came to earth to pursue you, to love you, to goad you to himself, to be in relationship with him for all eternity. And so if you're here today and you're just visiting, you're not even sure really how you got here or, or why you're here or whatever it might be, surprise, it's because God goaded you here. Maybe he goaded you here because you saw a sign or because you're going through a hard time or because you're wrestling with something. Maybe he goaded you here through a pretty girl. God uses all sorts of things to goad. But he has goaded you here that you might know how wonderful the salvation that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. He is pursuing you relentlessly. And so the good news of salvation is not that we have sought out God, but that God has sought us out to save us and bring us to himself. Our salvation is also spectacular because of the union of our salvation. Union simply means being joined together. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I'm guessing what's going through Saul's mind is, I didn't persecute Jesus. I've never even met Jesus, right? Like, like we read the story of Saul and we see who he's persecuting. He's persecuting people in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended into heaven. And now he's going up to Damascus to persecute people. And so when, when Jesus comes and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul must have been bewildered. He must have said, have I even ever met you? Like, who are you? You see, what this is communicating to us is something extremely profound, and that's this, that if you are, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are united to Jesus Christ. There is a union between you and him that is unbreakable. It's so unbreakable that if somebody persecutes you, for your faith, they are also persecuting Jesus. That's how united to Jesus we are. Even Paul, who was Saul and became Paul, was so overwhelmed by this glorious truth that we're united to Jesus Christ. Really, it is the foundational theological topic for Saul and Paul. When we get to Ephesians chapter 1, Saul demonstrates how union with Christ is the foundation for all the blessings of salvation. In Ephesians 1 alone, he says this, In Christ, which means union with Christ, in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That God has made known to us the mercies of the gospel in Christ. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, we have heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believe. And so you see this glorious truth that for those who know the salvation of Christ are in Christ. They are united to Jesus Christ. And all of their sustenance, all of their nutrients comes through this union with Jesus Christ. An illustration that's helpful for me is this. If you think of a, a woman carrying a child in her womb, they're connected, they're united through something called an umbilical cord. And through that umbilical cord comes all of the nutrients and all the sustenance this child needs for life. 
In the same way, we are a needy, independent people. And because we are united to Jesus Christ, we are nourished by Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. This is so foundational for our faith that it's even in our mission statement. What are the first three words? Life in Christ, right? We are in Christ. We are united to him. And there is nothing that can break you apart from him. And so we are united to Jesus Christ. But as we are united to Jesus Christ, we are also united to each other. We're united to the person that is down the road, down the row of you. Verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, different Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So let's just recap real quick, all right? Here's Ananias sitting in his house, praying, cooking dinner, whatever it might be, I don't know. And the Lord comes to him and says, Ananias, says, here I am, Lord, which if you know, it's kind of what Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me, right? So, so Ananias here, here I am, Lord, what do you want? He says, okay, well, hey, there's this guy named Saul, and he's from Tarsus, and he's in Judas's house on Straight Street. Could you just go down there and pray for the guy so that he would be healed, that he'd receive the Holy Spirit? And, and Ananias decides that God may not have all the information, right? And so he's like, hey, um, uh, Lord, do you know who this guy is? Like, do you know? Um, this guy Saul, he's the guy who was in Jerusalem that was throwing your disciples in prison. Uh, he's the one that was approving of Stephen's murder. Did, did you know this, Lord? You know, um, and, and by the way, God, like he's actually been given papers to come up to Damascus to arrest people like me, right? And send me, put me in prison for, for whatever, however long and to, to torture me. And so, um, Lord, could you rephrase your question, God? <laughs> or... Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. To put into perspective... Imagine if the Lord called to you. Yep, yeah, here I am. And they say, hey, I want you to go down. There's this house on Kellogg Street. And in there is a guy, um, his name, I'm going to not say it right, but Abu Bakr al-Bahjadi, the leader of ISIS, right? Uh, he's down there. I, I want you to go down there. And I want you to pray for him, right? Because I have plans for him. How would you respond? This guy kills Christians. It would be terrifying. And yet, here is Ananias. He goes, and he 
meets Paul, and he puts his hands on him. And what is the very first words out of his lips? Brother. (laughs) It's amazing. How does a, a foe become family that quick? You know, it's interesting as we read on, what we'll see is that, that Saul eventually makes it down to Jerusalem and the disciples don't want anything to do with him because they're scared of him. They don't think it was, he's really a Christian. And then Barnabas, good old Barnabas, brings him in and convinces them and he goes in and out amongst them. But, but their, their natural reaction is to push him away. But Ananias calls him brother. You see, if I'm united to Jesus Christ and you're united to Jesus Christ, then we are united to one another. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are, we are friends. We're not just friends, sorry. We are, we're family for, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, as long as we, well, even beyond when we die, right? We're, we're brothers and sisters forever. And you don't get a choice in it. But we are brothers and sisters in Christ because we are united to Christ. The Bible illustrates this in many ways. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, that just as one body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through many, are one body, so it is with Christ, who is our head. The Bible also uses the illustration of a temple and living stones and how we are built on one another and connected to one another, how Christ is our cornerstone. Or they use the illustration of a vine and branches, how Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And as we are united to Christ, we are united to one another. And so one of the glorious realities of our salvation is that we are not only united to Jesus Christ, but we are also united to the people sitting across the road. We're united to one another because we are in union with him and therefore union with one another and we are now family. And so how should we respond to this? This scary, awesome reality. Well, what do you do for family? What should we do for family? We love them. We care for them. We challenge them. We forgive them. We support them but we don't run away from them. We engage them. We seek reconciliation with them. If you're here today and there's a brother and sister in Christ that you are just so angry with, they are your brother, they are your sister because you are united to Christ and so are they. And so God calls us to go and be be reconciled. And so what is so spectacular about our salvation? We were sought out by God himself through Jesus Christ. We were united with Jesus Christ and with his bride. But finally, what is so spectacular about our salvation is the good news of our salvation. As a part of Saul's newfound salvation and faith, he receives two great blessings. And they're the same blessings that we receive. The first is seeing the good news of our salvation. Look at verse 17 with me again. So so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Ananias was giving two main objectives in visiting Saul. 
The first objective was to restore his sight, and the second was to pray that he might gain the Holy Spirit. These two objectives are intertwined very closely. You see, throughout Scripture, we are told that if you do not know Jesus, if you do not know Christ, if you have not trusted him for your salvation, that you are actually blind to the spiritualities of who he is. Because if you knew how good Jesus was, you would trust him with all of your heart. 2 Corinthians 4 says this way, it says, The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, and that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Saul was blind, not only physically, but spiritually. And so Ananias comes and lays hands to restore sight to Saul, not just physical, but spiritual sight that he might know and love Jesus. You know, all of us in our depravity were born spiritually blind, but by the grace of the Holy Spirit, he has shown us the good news of the gospel if you trust in Christ. You know, I know for me personally, before I was a Christian, I went to church every Sunday. I went to religion school on Saturday. I hated the Bible. It was the most boring thing in the entire world. I mean, it would, a dictionary is more fascinating to me than a Bible. That's where I was at, being honest. But then something changed that one night when God brought me to himself, when the Holy Spirit came inside of me. This Bible that I thought was the most boring thing in the world now became living and breathing to me. It was something that I cherished so deeply. It was so wonderful to feast upon. And it's because God, through his grace, gives us sight to see the glorious truths of the gospel and the glorious truths of his word. And so one of the great gifts of grace through the Holy Spirit is that God makes spiritually blind people see the good news of salvation. The other gift of grace is that he allows us to share the good news of salvation. Look in verse 20 with me. And immediately, Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God, not a Son of God, but the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Can you imagine how surprised the people were? Both both the Jews and the Christians, right? I mean, when Saul probably first stood up uh, to speak, they probably thought he was giving out directions on how to report a known Christian, right? If you know someone who's a Christian, this is how you document it, right? And give it to me, and we'll go, and we'll arrest him, and we'll take him down to Jerusalem. That's probably what they're thinking. And yet he comes up and says, I'm one of them. (laughs) I'm a Christian. And Jesus really is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. Now, You can imagine the Jewish leaders did not like this because the prime persecutor of Jesus now became the prime preacher of Jesus. And so they make arrangements to have him arrested and murdered. You know, when we look at this, um, it's amazing to see how quickly Saul goes to start preaching about Jesus. Verse 20 makes a point of it. It says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. 
You know, I know for me and maybe for you, sometimes I see this, this commission to go and share the good news of salvation as this, this burden that I really don't want to carry, right? Like, I really don't want to do this. But for Saul and for those who were struck by how profound and how spectacular salvation was, there was nothing else they would rather do. They wanted to go and tell others about Jesus, even at the cost of their own life. We have this great privilege of bringing forth not just good news, but the greatest news the world has ever known, the good news of our salvation. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. You know, it's interesting if you read this and you remember the story of Stephen, uh, Stephen had a very similar story in that Stephen stood before the Jews and he preached Jesus. But if you remember what happened to Stephen, it was very different than Saul. What happened to Stephen for preaching Jesus is that he was put to death. He was killed. And yet here we see that Saul preaches Jesus and God makes a way out for him through providence, through the Holy Spirit, through whatever it might be. God had made him aware of this plot to kill him, and he escapes out the wall. And so we look at this, and we even maybe think about people in our life who have died or who escaped death, or missionaries that we may know who who have shared Christ and have given their life for where other missionaries have shared Christ, and God had miraculously delivered them from death. And you're wondering, okay, so why is it that some people die and some people don't for sharing the good news of Christ? Now, I don't want to go too far here because I'm certainly not God, but one thing that I think is very instructive in us is the result of what happens to these men. You see, Stephen is murdered. And do you know what happens because Stephen is murdered? The gospel goes out to the entire world. The church fans out. It spreads and shares the good news of Jesus. Saul, on the other hand, is spared from being killed. And do you know what happens? He goes to the Gentiles. He goes to the uttermost ends of the earth to share the good news of salvation. And then he writes letters to these churches, and we're recipients of them in the New Testament. And so maybe God knew what he was doing, huh? Maybe? You see, God knows way more than we do, and he is orchestrating all things, even the time of our death, to bring forth his glory in this world. Now, we're going to move on to verse 26. And before we do that, I just want to let you know, between verse 25 and 26, there's actually three years, all right? There's, it's a lot of time between two verses, all right? But if you look at this map up here, you can see, so, so Saul goes up to Damascus. He be, becomes a Christian. Um, he starts preaching Jesus. They want to persecute him. He escapes out the wall. And then he goes into Arabia. And we don't know how long, uh, but we know that he went out this way. We, we're told this in Galatians 1. And then he comes back. And maybe he's in Damascus for a time. And then three years after his conversion, it's then that he comes down to Jerusalem. And so that's what we're reading about here. So verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, 
but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which is his homeland up north. So the church, not the churches, but the church singular because they're united to Christ, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So we see here, Saul has this passion to share Christ with others. And it's no burden for him to do it. It's what he wants to do. When he's in Damascus, he shares Jesus. He's going to be killed, so he escapes. He goes down to Jerusalem. He shares Jesus, and he's only there, I think, for 15 days or something like that. We read in another place. And he shares Jesus, and they want to kill him there. So he goes up to Damascus, and guess what's going to happen there? He's sharing Jesus. And how, would he, how do we know that? Because he continues to share Jesus throughout the uttermost ends of the earth. You see, sharing Jesus is not a, a, it's not a burden that we should regret, but it is a joy and a blessing that we get to do. We get to share the good news of Christ with others. Let me put it this way. Um, last year, some, or last weekend, some of you may have seen a football game, the Packers versus Cowboys, right? And there was the final 12 seconds or so that were really exciting, right? And Rodgers rolls out and he throws this, this pass down the sideline and um, the tight, what's his name? What is it? Jared, Jared Cook catches it, right? And he gets his toes in and it's amazing. And then Mason Crosby steps up to kick this 50-something-year-old 50-something yard field goal, and he kicks it, and it goes right through the uprights, right? Like, it's perfect. But the coach called timeout, so he has to re-kick another 50-yard field goal. And how probable is it that he'll make two in a row? Well, anyways, they come back out. Rogers kicks the ball, and there's this camera angle that you can see, and you're like, that's going to the left of the post. Like, it's going to miss, right? It's not going in. Do you know? Did you see that? I mean, it's like it's going to the left. And so all the Packer fans on one side of the stadium go, and the ball curves, right, in a dome. How often does a ball curve in a dome? I don't know, but the ball curves, and it goes through the uprights, and the Packers win the game, right? And, and, and you know, my friend who's watching it with me, I'm like, did you see that? He's like, of course I saw it. I was watching the game with you, right? And the next morning, wow, that was amazing. Did you see that? Imagine if there was an edict, and we said, you can tell nobody about what happened last night. You can't tell anyone. You can't talk about the Packers game. Can you imagine how hard that would be, how difficult that would be? I mean, it would be so awkward at work the next day, wouldn't it? Like, what you do this weekend? Nothing what you do, right? Because there's such good news. You saw it and you want to share it. We have greater news than a winning field goal. We have the good news of a spectacular salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. And we don't only see it and experience, but we have this great blessing to share it with everyone we encounter. You know, I know my heart is so wicked Because so often I see this as a duty that I don't want to perform. How horrible is that? It is a great blessing that we get to share about a spectacular salvation with everyone that God puts into our life. Let me end with this. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. Some of you may be really familiar with it, but in the story, Jesus is teaching in this house, and it's so crowded that nobody can get in, and these guys bring this paralytic on a mat, right? And they can't get in, and so they climb up on the roof, and they break the roof open, and they lower this man through the roof in front of Jesus, right? And so there it is. There's this crowd. There's Jesus. There's this paralytic, and they're sitting there watching to see, is Jesus going to do his magic, right? Is he going to do something spectacular here? And so Jesus 
looks at the man. And do you know, remember what he said? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. I can imagine the crowd's response. I, can, I mean, imagine the guys that brought him there. They're probably saying, this isn't why we brought him here, right? Like, we didn't come for this purpose. We wanted, he's a paralytic. Like, we didn't bring him for this. And then Jesus continues and he says this. He says, what is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Jesus says this because when he tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, there is no response. There's crickets, right? No one, no one believes it. No one is excited about it. Nothing. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Here's the point. Jesus looks at the paralytic. He knows his deepest need in life. And he says to him, your sins are forgiven. And the response is nothing. And then Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And it says they were amazed and they praised God. Yay, Jesus, that was awesome. They were amazed by the lesser miracle. They were amazed by the lesser miracle. You may be here today and you may have some physical limitations. Pray for God to heal you. That's good. Uh, you, may, you may have struggles in your life and you need the Lord to help you. Pray for him to, to help you overcome those struggles in your life. You, you may want to, to throw a mountain into the sea. Go ahead and pray for a mountain to be cast into the sea. But you know what? All of those are lesser miracles because the greatest miracle God has ever given to us is the forgiveness of our sins. You see, if you're here today and you trust in Jesus and you are in Christ, you are a walking, living, breathing miracle of God. You are the greatest miracle there is. Do not get sidetracked by lesser miracles. You have a spectacular salvation. And because we have such a spectacular salvation, we know we have such a spectacular Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us for craving lesser miracles and not cherishing the great miracle of salvation, Lord. Lord, you have forgiven our sin. You have united us with yourself and with your church. You have made dead people alive in our spirits. And Lord, we come today to say, forgive us for becoming complacent to this and thank you that it is still true. Thank you, Lord, that our salvation is secure because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we grasp a little more this Sunday, this week, how spectacular a salvation that we have, that we might enjoy you and share it with the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.